Good evening. Bojo booed, but undaunted, he survives a vote of no confidence. A bloodbath at a church in Nigeria, the summit of the Americas, its alternative, and NYPD's mysterious actions at a progressive spot in Manhattan. Gun laws in New York, and Adam says, class size matters. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with the WBAI News for Monday, June 6th. 2021. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson survived a no-confidence vote today, securing enough support from his Conservative Party to remain in office despite a rebellion that leaves him a weakened leader with an uncertain future. Johnson won the backing of 211 out of uh, 359 Conservative lawmakers, more than the simple majority needed to remain in power, but still a significant rebellion of 148 MPs. Those are members of Parliament. During celebrations of Queen Elizabeth II's Platinum Jubilee, Johnson was booed by some onlookers as he arrived for his service in the Queen's honor at St. Paul's Cathedral earlier on Friday. The Prime Minister just arriving with his wife. It's quite booing in the crowd. Um, well, and you can hear it. There is really quite a lot of booing, actually. Wow. A substantial amount. Johnson became prime minister in July 2019, bouncing back from various setbacks, showing an uncommon ability to shrug off scandal and connect with voters. Nevertheless, concerns came to a head after an investigator's report late last month slammed a culture of rule breaking inside the prime minister's office in a scandal known as Partygate. Civil service investigator Sue Gray described alcohol-fueled bashes held by Downing Street staff members in 2020 and 2021 when pandemic restrictions prevented UK residents from socializing or even visiting dying relatives. Queen Elizabeth herself had to sit apart from her own family during the funeral of her husband. Lawmaker Jesse Norman, a longtime Johnson supporter, said the prime minister had presided over a culture of casual lawbreaking. Jeremy Hunt, who ran against Johnson for the conservative leadership in 2019, said today's decision is change or lose. United Nations correspondent Ian Williams says the result of the vote is a devastating setback to Johnson, despite his close win been a vote on his character rather than his policies. We have to remember a lot of the Tories who want him out do so because they don't think he's been reactionary enough. They don't think he's been sort of, you know, pursuing a neoliberal agenda, an austerity agenda. Boris Johnson isn't about ideology. He wants to get elected. And if this means stuffing the maws of the electorate with gold to do so, he's quite prepared to pay the price. He doesn't have an ideological bone in his body that way, apart from the idea of the divine right of Boris Johnson to do what the hell he likes. Public opinion in England about this, I mean, they booed him. That was very significant. And, you know, the BBC and the others that usually tried to cover this up, they couldn't hide it. It was just too obvious. But he wanted to make it all about personality, and he's got his personality. People dislike him. They think he lied. They think he made them suffer during the COVID epidemic. They made, as you said, the Queen suffer during the COVID epidemic. He took it very seriously in Britain. There was no sort of state by state or city by city. People were locked up in their houses. They were in cocoons with a small group of people. They were isolated. They missed funerals. And yet, repeatedly, he and his staff decided the rules didn't apply to them. There's a lot of resentment. It's almost silly because there should be a lot more resentment because these people have been gorging at the public trough <laughs> and leaving other people to starve. What's the significance of Jeremy Hunt and uh, Jesse Norman's 
this is significant because there are people there who are they're saying that he's got to go. It's as simple as that. The question is whether somebody of such an ego. I mean, once again, the analogy with Trump comes. Trump didn't feel he had to go when he'd lost the general election. Boris, his supporters are saying if he wins by one vote, he can stay. Well, he can, but he's mortally wounded in the British system because his power derives from Parliament. And if he can't maintain a majority of Parliament all the way through, then he can't govern effectively. How would this affect the Brexit, the fact that Brexit is still unsettled, especially on the Irish border? On the Brexit thing, it gets really complicated because this is an issue that covers both sides. There are people on the left who are totally Brexiteer and support him, and then there are people, on the other hand, who agree with him up to a point but think he should be doing things about it. One of the things he's been doing is try to ameliorate the economic effects of Brexit by handing out public subsidies. And for the rest of the cabinet is all busily trying to claw that back and to reduce welfare payments, to reduce minimum wages, to, to reduce the payments that go out to people who are suffering. It's not just in Britain, but across we're having a meltdown of the uh, neoliberal consensus, free market consensus. They were all preaching for free markets in fuel and gas. And as you go to the petrol tank and as you look at your Con Edison bill, how is that free market looking for you? And it's the same in Britain. Their electricity bills are shooting up. And at one time, this was controlled by a nationalized state enterprise who had complete control, who could say, well, we'll charge less this time and we'll get more back over the years. Now, these are private companies that are dealing in the market and they're gouging as much as they possibly can. Ian Williams, a reporter who uh, covers the United Nations here in New York. Despite his victory, Johnson is likely to face more pressure. The war in Ukraine, a simmering post-Brexit feud with the European Union, and soaring inflation are all weighing on the government. Polls give the left-to-center opposition Labor Party a lead nationally, and conservatives could lose special elections later this month for two parliamentary districts. And survivors of an attack by unknown assailants on a Catholic church in Nigeria lay weeping and writhing in pain at a local hospital today after suffering what doctors described as lacerations, bullet wounds, and blast injuries. Police, who have yet to release a death toll, said they had recovered unexploded improvised explosive devices and shells from AK-47 ammunition. Father Vincent Anadi recounted a witness who had warned him not to go to the church because he said people were being killed. Um, realized that the happening was in my parish because I saw people running helter skelter in the town and saying they are coming, they are coming. So um, I was trying to look for the shortest cut to get back to the parish. It was in that instance that I saw two of my altar servers who stopped me and said, Father, 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 stop, stop, don't go to the parish. They are killing people in the parish. And I said, which people? They said they don't know. Heard a gunshot. Hearing the gunshot, he saw the main door of the church being closed. People already, you know, were um, agitated. In that agitation, he was still watching. I guess, I guess he was frozen. What is happening? What is happening? Then he heard the explosion. And it was that explosion that woke him up to, it's like, you know, there's trouble. And then he ran into the sacristy.
everybody in the church in the church were all running towards the sacristy and by that time they had come in to gain entrance into the church and were shooting sporadically and then also using the handed device you know explosive Father Vincent Anadi, inside the church, streaks of blood on the floors and walls, a broken lectern and pew, plaster debris and abandoned items, including shoes and well-thumbed Bibles covered in shards of glass, bore witness to the intensity of the violence inside the church. An Owo resident in the town or village of Owo that the uh, massacre occurred said that some local people were blaming the church massacre on members of the Hausa Fulani ethnic group who are predominantly Muslim and live mostly in northern Nigeria with communities in other regions. But neither the police nor state authorities have blamed any group. In an unusual occurrence, Serbia and Russia confirmed today that a planned visit by Russia's foreign minister to the Balkan country won't take place, with Moscow accusing the West of preventing the trip by blocking the envoy's plane flight. The announcement followed reports that Serbia's neighbors, Bulgaria, North Macedonia, and Montenegro, had refused to allow Sergei Lavrov's plane to fly through their airspace to reach Serbia. Serbian President Alexander Vucic earlier Monday met with Russia's ambassador to Serbia, who informed him that Lavrov couldn't come because the Russian government plane was denied the necessary flyover permissions. President Vladimir Putin of Russia had this to say about the event. We've got a lot of questions from media about unprecedented decisions which were made by some member states of NATO. This act by these countries impeded the visit of the Russian foreign minister to the Republic of Serbia. Of course, the unthinkable happened. Anyway, these relations won't disappear. We invited Foreign Minister Nikola Selakovich to visit Moscow in a short time. I hope that his plane will not be disgracefully sanctioned by shameless Brussels and its clients. And that is President Vladimir Putin. Formally still seeking European membership, Serbia has maintained friendly ties with Russia despite the invasion of Ukraine, refusing to join Western sanctions against Moscow. Many in Serbia view the fellow Slavic nation as a close ally, and Moscow has backed Serbia in its efforts to retain its claim on Kosovo. Mexican President Andre Manuel Lopez Obrador said today he won't be attending the summit of the Americas hosted later this week by the United States due to the exclusion of several countries in the region. Cuba, Nicaragua and Venezuela were not invited to the summit because of the lack of democratic space and human rights situations. That's according to a senior Biden administration official. The White House press secretary was more blunt later in the day saying we just don't believe dictators should be invited. We don't regret that and the president will stand by his principle. Lobrez Obrador had previously threatened to boycott the summit, which is traditionally attended by leaders from North, Central, and South America and the Caribbean, convened every few years. There's actually an alternative people's summit that's going on in Los Angeles, and we spoke with Margaret Flowers about that earlier today. This summit is supposed to be the summit of the Americas, but the United States decided unilaterally that it would just not include Cuba, Nicaragua, or Venezuela, and that's part of why many Latin American and Caribbean nations are, you know, opposed to the organization of American states because of the U.S. control and how the U.S. uses it for its own imperialist projects. And so they've created their own institution, CELAC, which is Latin American and and Caribbean communities. And they're organizing through that because it's a much more democratic and equal institution for them. So are you going to be participating? I will yeah. not be in L.A., unfortunately. I have uh, two young children I that I'm hear. raising. and Yeah, <laughs> so um, so they're just right. finishing up their school well, year. This response, does this have a, some influence, and what is that influence? It's 
really critical that people in the United States organized this counter summit to the summit of the Americas because, for one thing, it's it's really important for us to show our neighboring countries in the Americas that we don't support what this administration or any of the previous administrations are doing when it comes to what they do in Latin America and that we connect with the social movements in those countries, particularly the countries that have been building left alternative institutions, because we have a lot to learn from them when it comes to resisting U.S. imperialism. And and as people who reside in the United States, we have a big responsibility to take an active role to change what our government is doing. So this is good for connecting with social movements. It's good for educating. It's good for showing that we have a social movement in the U.S. And that was Margaret Flowers talking about the alternative that's being proposed, that's being held actually to the uh, Summit of the Americas, the People's Summit, which is scheduled to occur in Los Angeles. We spoke with Dan Kovalik, who's a writer, and he discussed uh, what moved AMLO, the uh, Lopez Obrador, the president of Mexico, to to refuse to join this uh, U.S.-sponsored event that's happening this weekend. The U.S. has sponsored a summit of the Americas over the years and over the years has tried to exclude various countries and often Cuba, Venezuela and or Nicaragua have been the three countries excluded. This year, Biden again said he wanted to exclude them. Very quickly, President AMLO of Mexico said, well, I don't think that's correct. I think that all the countries of the Americas need to be at the summit of the Americas and if you don't invite those three countries, I'm not going. The government of Bolivia said the same. A number of Caribbean countries said the same. And so, yeah, now AMLO has said he's not going to the summit at the end of the week. So I'm not surprised by it. He was very clear that that's what he would do. So a major country in the hemisphere of Mexico, which, of course, shares a border with the U.S., which has a giant economy, which is a member of NAFTA, will not be present at a summit that's supposed to include all the countries of the Americas. Do you think it would have played out the same way if Trump was still president? Trump was also very aggressive against the three countries I mentioned. In fact, uh, Mike Pompeo himself openly said the Trump administration wanted to change the governments of Nicaragua, Cuba, and Venezuela. So I guess I don't think it would be different. But I think at the same time, maybe people hope that Biden would be better. But he is no different than Trump in this respect. Damlo basically said the Organization for American States should be disbanded, possibly. Amlo said that he thought that the OAS had lost its credibility as some neutral arbiter in the hemisphere, that it was very biased towards the United States. Of course, he's not the first person who said that. Many have, including Daniel Ortega in Nicaragua. Fidel Castro said that years ago. And there's evidence that the OAS supported the U.S. coup in Guatemala in 1954, the U.S. coup in Chile in 1973, even helped pave the way for the U.S. Marine invasion of the Dominican Republic in 1965. So this is not a neutral arbiter. And AMLO has said that, you know, he views them as in the tank for the U.S. and that maybe we need something else to govern the Americas. Is the U.S. losing the influence it once had, the Monroe Doctrine sort of influence it had? Absolutely. Obviously, this is a process that's been happening for some time, certainly since the Cuban Revolution of 1959, the Sandinista Revolution, which followed in 1979. There was a bit of a lull in resistance for a while, but then with the election of Hugo Chavez in Venezuela in 1998, 
a number of countries then took his lead and became much more oppositional to U.S. influence. I think we're seeing now another wave of that. So, yes, I think the U.S. is steadily losing the influence it has over the Caribbean and Latin America. Dan Kovalik, writer for numerous uh, progressive institutions, uh, speaking with WBAI earlier today. WBAI over the weekend received a press release, and we're still investigating the story, but it came from the People's Forum in New York City, which claimed to be attacked by far-right groups, and which they say were enabled by the police. It included a photograph of numerous uh, police officers inside the uh, organization's premises, which is uh, on the ground floor on uh, in the uh, Chelsea neighborhood of Manhattan. In their press release, they said, since our founding in 2018, our space, the People's Forum, has been the target of multiple attacks by the far right on both social media and in our location. We've managed to defend our space, which operates on values and principles of social justice and people power. Most recently, a coalition of anti-vaxxers, Cuban and Venezuelan anti-communists and other far-right reactionaries have increased their attacks on the uh, People's Forum. And they said that on Friday, over a dozen officers of the New York Police Department entered the building uninvited and acted as security for the far-right who carried out an illegal attack on our space. Um, WBAI has... uh, some phone calls out to folks involved with that organization, and we are waiting for them to respond. And we'll be happy to tell you what happened there in much more depth in the days to come this week. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. New Yorkers under the age of 21 will be prohibited from buying semi-automatic rifles under a new law signed today by Governor Kathy Hochul, making the state one of the first to enact a major gun control initiative following a wave of deadly mass shootings. It just keeps happening. Shots ring out, flags come down, and nothing ever changes. Except here in New York. In New York, in New York, we are taking bold, strong action. We're tightening the red flag laws to keep guns away from dangerous people. And we're raising the age of semi-automatic weapons so no 18-year-old can walk in on their birthday and walk out with an AR-15. Those days are over. Those days are over. You hear that? Those days are over. Thoughts and prayers won't fix this, but taking strong action will. And as Governor Kathy Hochul earlier today, signing a package of 10 bills uh, strengthening New York State's gun laws. But that, that bill... Um, is facing uh, problems on the national level where uh, supporters of the NRA and other uh, uh, gun rights uh, groups are held a tremendous amount of or hold a tremendous amount of power. Um, the mayor is also fearful of what might happen in this city if the Supreme Court, in a case that's uh, before the court at this time, rules to uh, make basically gun permits unconstitutional under the Second Amendment to the Constitution. We'll hear that about that in a moment. Um, today, uh, 
Monday, Mayor Eric Adams detailed a uh, a number of things of of interest. But let's start with uh, the Deputy Commissioner Jason Savino of the uh, gun, uh, sort of the police uh, gun. Uh, unit that's been put together, I guess they call it the Gun Violence Suppression Division. Uh, he said that uh, uh, police have gotten on top of uh, the problem of guns in New York and taken 3,000 of those weapons off the streets. He spoke earlier today. We are the best of the best looking at the worst of the worst. Absolute great investigators. I'm surrounded by the team. Boss, I share your sentiment. You know, when we include individuals in a takedown, these are by far the worst of the worst in the entire city. The trigger pullers, the alphas, the snakes heads of the neighborhoods. Everybody knows who these individuals are. When you walk into your neighborhood, these are the individuals that create just an uncomfortable quality of life. Not to mention, they have really the gall, if you will, to pull a trigger. Regardless of who's around them, regardless of any unintended targets, something we've seen far too often. And that's Deputy Chief Jason Savino of the new NYPD Gun Violence Suppression Division, which he claims has already reduced shootings throughout New York City. At his press conference, Mayor Adams uh, talked about this uh, potential Supreme Court decision to legalize the right to open carry weapons throughout the entire United States, including New York, which would upend a century of gun laws in this city and state. People hear of this right to carry, you should focus on it. If this right to carry, this keeps me up at night. If this right to carry goes through the Supreme Court and becomes the law of the land, can you imagine being on a four train with someone having a nine millimeter exposed? Everyone on the train is carrying. <laughs> this, is like, this is not the wild, wild west. And this law is, you know, it's, it's frightening to think that we are even thinking about that and what they did in Atlanta and what they're doing. This fixation with guns is really, we, even in the midst of, of Florida, in the midst of Texas, in the midst, midst of, of all of these shootings, we're still even considering this. Those laws prevent these types of shootings from taking place. So it's a real concern and I, we need to talk about it more. And the mayor, uh, who won a partial victory in the state legislature last week uh, when lawmakers extended mayoral control over New York City schools for another two years, uh, is still uh, you know, upset in a way because he didn't get what he wanted, which was uh, uh, to shoot down a law that uh, limits the size of New York City classrooms. Right now, uh, New York City classrooms are limited by law to about 31 students per class, and the uh, legislature passed a law reducing that by uh, into the by about 10 people per class uh, although because of the covid pandemic many people have left and pulled their kids out of the schools and left new york and school uh, classroom size has actually been reduced by that alone to the mid-20s. The mayor opposes reducing classroom size because he says the city just can't afford it while proponents uh, say that the money is there. They've received it from the federal government. Uh, Adams addressed that conflict today. The money has to come from somewhere. And so our conversation was, tell us what we should cut. Should we cut pre-K? Should we cut dyslexia screening? Should we cut the mental health professionals? Tell us what we should cut. And I would have hoped they would have put in the bill and stated that here are the areas you should cut. 
Because if we're going to do something that's going to have a major impact on the funding of the DOE, then we should take the responsibility of saying to New Yorkers, we no longer want pre-K. We no longer want dyslexia screening. You can't just say, we're giving you this unfunded mandate. There is no money. They send the money that's coming in. They need to show us where it is. And when you look at this money, we're, gonna, we're hitting a cliff. This money is not, it's not here, as the governor stated. This money is not here um, next year, you know, the next budgets to come up. We don't have that money. And so we're hoping that they look at those schools that are in greater need uh, to do class sizes in that need now. We're down to the union contract called for 32 students per class. That's the union contract. We're at 21.5. <laughs> We're already, we, have, we lost 150,000 families. We've dropped down to 21.5. Because we're dropping so low, it's going to mess with our federal dollars that are coming in. And we're in a fiscal crisis. And as the mayor earlier today, the class size bill was proposed by Senator John Liu last week, who was also the author of a bill uh, which uh, uh, limited the uh, control the mayor would have to two years from the four he required uh, over the school system. The class size bill would require kindergarten through third grade classes to be no larger than 20 students, fourth through eighth grade classes to be no larger than 23 students, and high school classes to be no larger than 25 students. Lou said there's no excuse for the city of New York to continue to have class sizes that are substantially larger than the rest of the state. And that's some of the news for Monday, June 6, 2022. The news is produced Linda Perry, our engineers, Reggie Johnson from New York City. I'm Paul Durienzo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>